0: All right, if you haven't already, please grab a seat. Thank you guys again all so much for coming out this morning. Really excited to open up God's Word with you today. If you're just kind of jumping in, for the last couple of months, we've been going through the book of Acts together. And Acts is really this fascinating book. Uh, when you look at it, it's really the second part of a two-part box set, you could say, about the life and times of Jesus Christ. So in the first volume the gospel according to Luke, we read all about what Jesus taught and did while he was on earth. And now in the second volume, the book of Acts, we read all about what Jesus taught and did now while he continues to do while he's in heaven. And in particular, what we've been looking at is the call that Jesus places on all of our lives as the church to be witnesses to what he has and is continuing to do in the world, saving lost people now by his spirit and through his church. And today's passage comes at the tail end of a couple chapters uh, where Luke has been showing us, through the first church, this community of witnesses that Jesus is building through his Spirit. Uh, And it's really this incredible picture. When we look at what's happening in the first church, they are this group of people filled with the Holy Spirit, united in love and sacrifice for each other, all for the glory of God. And today, in today's passage, we're going to be looking at how this church continues to grow, uh, you could say kind of addition by subtraction. Um, So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead, turn it to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, I don't have one with you. There are some paperback ones on the tables when you came in. We got the page number up on the screen. Uh, Please take that home with you as a gift from us. Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to be looking today. And if you would, if you're able, let's stand as we read from God's Word this morning. Starting in verse one, it says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but the rest brought and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that you have been so filled with, in your heart with Satan that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land?' "'Yes,' she said, "'that is the price.' Then Peter said to her, "'How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? "'Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, "'and they will carry you out also.' At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died." Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You guys can take a seat. So, yeah. <laughs> when Jamie and I were making the uh, sermon calendar, he was like, hey, I think I'm going to be out of town for this one. And I was like, yeah, I bet you are. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. This is actually Jamie's life verse, his favorite one here. Um, seriously, though, this passage It makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? At least a little bit. I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, you can't help but read this and have at least a couple questions walking away from it. Here's what I wanna say from the beginning. I'm gonna try my best on uh, very little sleep with a newborn at home, and I went to the UCF game last night, so it's slightly self-inflicted. I'm gonna try my best to answer a couple of those questions today, but here's the thing. I don't wanna miss what I think is the real reason that Luke gave us this passage. And it wasn't just to confuse or confront 21st century Western people, all right? Luke is a very careful historian. He doesn't just kind of throw things in the book of Acts because he's like, I don't know, it just seemed like a cool story, so I put it in there. He is writing history, but even more than that, the genre of Acts could best be described as biblical history. So if you look at what Luke's doing here, he's mirroring in a lot of ways the Old Testament books that were written about God's people, Israel then. And what he's doing in all of this is to show us how Jesus is still at work now saving lost people by his spirit and through his church. And in particular, what Luke wants to show us today is what I think he's trying to say is the greatest threat to the church. You know, you can read a lot of church growth books. They have a lot of great things to say. And they would tell us, you know, the reason your church isn't growing is because your parking lot's not big enough, uh, your programs aren't slick enough, your pastor doesn't dress well enough. And Luke would say, okay, yes, maybe to all of that, but you want to know what is really the death sentence to any church? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy kills our witness. G.K. Chesterton, the famous English author, uh, once said the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. Hypocrisy kills witness. This is what the church in Acts is facing, if we're being honest right now. This is what the church in America is facing. We've seen story after story come out of these big public scandals in the church. It's making people question their faith. And so I think whether you're here today as a Christian, not a Christian, I think this is a passage that we all desperately need to hear right now. And in particular, I think there's three really big things that Luke needs us to hear today, all right? A threat, a purge, and a promise. So a threat to the church, an eventual purge of the church, and then lastly, a promise for the church. And it really starts by looking at the threat to the church and Acts, to the church and you and me, to all of us, hypocrisy. And it's a threat that by its very nature is hard to detect. In fact, in this passage, it takes the Holy Spirit giving the Apostle Peter this special understanding for him to even see what's going on here. And that's because it's a threat that comes from someone who on the outside has these really pious hands. I mean, look what Luke draws out in verse 1. Just before this passage, Luke gives us this little summary statement of the effect that the Holy Spirit has been having on the church, the early church here. And it tells us these incredible things, that they're united to each other, that they're dedicated to the apostles' teaching about Jesus. And Luke says God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that they gave with this overwhelming generosity to the point that it says nobody in this early church had any outstanding need among them. And it culminates in this guy named Barnabas who goes and sells a piece of land that he has, takes all the money from it, lays it down the apostles' feet, and says, this is yours. Do whatever you guys need with it. Now, Luke says in verse 1, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And at face value, it seems like they're doing the same thing that everybody else was doing. Barnabas sold a piece of property. He gave it to the apostles. Now Ananias and Sapphira are going to sell a piece of property. They're going to give it to the apostles. These guys are awesome, right? This is what makes hypocrisy such a threat because it comes in with these pious hands. It comes in with these people who, are, who look like, hey, look at me. I am the model of godliness. But deep down, there's something else going on. See, behind the pious hands of Ananias and Sapphira is really this polluted heart. And we see this from the very first word of the passage. Now, but, your translation might say. See, Luke isn't trying to continue Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira. No, he's trying to contrast Barnabas to Ananias and Sapphira. And by contrasting them, he's showing us the polluted nature of their hypocritical hearts. says in verse 2, Uh, With his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And this word that's used here uh, in your Bible, kept back, that maybe doesn't quite capture uh, the best understanding of the word. Um, And that's partially because it's a word that's really not used much in the New Testament. It's used here in this story. The only other time it's used is in the book of Titus, where it talks about stealing money from your job. Uh, But the best way maybe to translate this word would be to misappropriate, or as we might just simply say, embezzlement. And in fact, a lot of commentators think with this kind of clearer understanding of the word, the picture that's going on here is that Ananias beforehand told Peter, I'm going to sell the land for this much money, and then I'm going to give it to you, fully knowing in his head the entire time it was a complete lie. And so in verse 3, Peter says, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept back from yourself some of the money that you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. And in a second, Peter brings to light What is the polluted nature of Ananias' heart? You see, a lot of times I think when we read through the book of Acts, we can think that the first church was this like first century hippie commune, where it was like, man, everybody loved everybody. Nobody owned everything. What's mine is yours and yours is mine. Um, I had a roommate who took that approach to the fridge once, All right? It's not very fun. I can tell you for a fact. And it's not what's happening here. All right, it's purely voluntary giving. Look at what Peter says to him. Hey, man, you, you didn't have to do this, all right? This money was yours before you sold the land, and it was yours after you sold the land. You really didn't have to give me any of it, but he did. And it's in that that we see the true nature of Ananias' polluted heart come to the surface. And it's really magnified when you look at it in the context here, between the church and between this couple, You see, the church at this point is filled with the Holy Spirit. They're united with each other in care and service for the people around them, for the glory of God. But what does Peter say is going on with Ananias? He's filled with Satan. He's not speaking God's word of truth. He's speaking lies. And he's not doing it on his own. He's united to his wife and love and care of each other for their own glory. In other words, they wanted the reputation of being sacrificial without the cost of being sacrificial. For them, it, it, it wasn't about love of other people. It was about love of self. It was about using people instead of serving people to build up their own reputation. Thomas Watson, uh, who was a Puritan uh, in England in the 1600s, he describes spiritual hypocrisy this way. He says, the hypocrite or stage player... Has gone a step beyond the moralist and dressed himself in the garb of religion. He pretends to a form of godliness, but denies the power. The hypocrite is a saint in jest. He makes a magnificent show, like a house with a beautiful facade, but every room within is dark. I mean this is what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of in the Gospels, using the appearance of godliness for their own glory. And this is the same thing that Peter is accusing Ananias and Sapphira for, using the appearance of godliness for their own glory. And it's this hypocrisy that is such a threat to the church because it kills our witness. I mean, this is what we see right now. With scandal after scandal in the news, these big public spectacles, it kills our witness. But here's what's interesting. If you look at what's going on here, it's not the power-hungry celebrity best-selling author or kind of callous pastor who's acting hypocritically in this passage. It's two random people who we never heard from before now and we'll never hear from again after this. And what I think Luke is doing in this is he's not allowing ourselves to distance us from this passage. I think he's saying, hey, this threat, it can happen to anyone. So let me ask you, Where are you tempted to use the appearance of godliness or goodness, if you're not a Christian, for your own glory? Maybe it's in your marriage. You help out a ton at home. You know, you comment your spouse a lot. You compliment them all the time. You make sure to carve out all this time. But deep down, you know... You're really not doing that out of this pure love for them. You're really doing it so that your spouse and everyone who knows you and your friend group will say, Man, can you believe just how great a husband Eric is? Maybe it's in your parenting. Right? You're at every practice, you take them to every travel tournament, you, uh, you know, have the best fun things and parties for them, but you're really doing that deep down, not because you enjoy watching your kids just have fun with these things, because you want all the other parents in your neighborhood to go, wow, this is the best parent ever, if I could only be like them. Maybe it's in your job, the way you work for your boss, maybe it's in the way you serve here at Crosspoint. And in saying this, hear me on this, I am just as much putting myself in this, all right? If I'm being honest, it wasn't a very fun sermon to prep, right? Like, there are passages that I, man, I can't wait to get my hands on and preach, This one, not even on the list, because all week, it was staring me in the face and saying, before you talk to anyone else, Eric, let's just look at you for a moment. Where are you tempted maybe not even tempted, where are you right now using the appearance of godliness for your own glory? Me, as a leader standing up here right now, I should be held accountable for this more than anybody else. And so at this point in the book of Acts, church is growing. Things were going great. And then this couple Ananias and Sapphira come in, and Satan is trying to use them to completely derail all the progress that the early church has made. And so the question, if you're reading through the book of Acts, you really need to be asking right now, is what is Jesus going to do about this? And what we see next is how he deals with this threat to the church, uh, that ultimately there comes a purge of the church. Jesus is radically protective of his church. And so because of that, he purges out anything that threatens the welfare and witness of his church. I mean, this is what happens in verse 5. It says, When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And now, to understand why Jesus is purging this couple out of the church, you need to kind of see the sin underneath the sin. See, buried underneath their just brazen, premeditated hypocrisy, something that I think is far worse and far more damaging. At the core of this couple's hypocrisy was an unrepentant heart. And I think it's even easier to see if you look at verses 7 in uh, Sapphira's death. It says, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got from the land? Gives her a chance to repent. And she says, yes, that is the price. Peter says to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? In other words, why why are you trying to see how much you can get away with? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. The sin under the sin was an unrepentant heart, and that's ultimately why Jesus purges them out of his community. You see, when you read through the Old Testament, you will see, especially in the prophets, that there was this hope For a restored people of God who God would use to fulfill his promise to bless the world through them. And one of the marks of this restored people was their repentance. We see it in verses uh, like in Ezekiel 18, for instance. Talking to the people of Israel, he says, "'Repent, turn away from all your offenses.'" Then your sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself from all your offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. All throughout the prophets up to John the Baptist, we see this call to repent. Jesus, first words in the book of Mark, repent. And what would be one of the marks of this repentance? The prophets say it was your care for other people. A repentant heart humbly cares for the people around them. Ananias and Sapphira, no, they're not doing that. They're using all the people around them to try and build up their own reputation. The two couldn't be more different, right? Hypocrisy is hiding. It's deceitful, it's staying in the shadows. It's trying to deal with sin on your own. It's using other people around you. It's fundamentally rejecting Jesus. Repentance, repentance is coming into the light. It's admitting the truth. It's confessing, I I can't deal with my sin on my own. I I need the free grace of God. It's not moving away. It's fundamentally moving toward the love of Jesus. And the prophets tell us, it shows itself in the way that you care for other people. And yet Ananias and Sapphira at this moment, they're, they're the direct opposite of that. If the renewed people of God are supposed to be this repentant people, they're the direct opposite of that. And here's the problem. If you haven't noticed kind of subtly within there, they're trying to set themselves up right now as the model Christians in this community. And so Jesus purges them out of his church because he is radically concerned about the welfare and the witness of his church and to show as a sign of the future judgment that will come for people who don't repent at the end of time. And this is where we're probably going to lose a few people. (laughs) Um, You might be sitting here right now thinking, wow, um, I believe in a God of acceptance and love. I I cannot really get on board with a God of judgment. If this is what Christianity is about, take me off the mailing list. And if that's you right now, okay, you're not alone. That's actually a very common thought right now. And to understand it, you've got to understand just a little bit about our culture right now. Uh, So Charles Taylor, who's a philosopher, a world-renowned philosopher up in Canada, he says you can describe our culture, especially here in America right now, as what he calls the age of authenticity. Essentially what that means is you and I discover who we are, at least we're told, one of the baseline cultural narratives is that we discover more of who we're truly meant to be through exploring and expressing our inner desires. So in other words, with that kind of mindset on, we want a God of acceptance, a God of love, who's going to give us free reign to just kind of explore whatever's tinkering around inside here. What we don't want is a God of judgment because he might put some limits on how much I'm able to explore and express my inner desires. So culturally, it may seem why you're sitting here thinking, I can't fathom to have a, a believe in a God who judges. But what you need to understand is uh, that's a very culturally specific thing to believe. Okay, so people in other countries, other parts of the world, other cultures, may not believe that. In fact, may believe the direct opposite. For them, they might be able to not fathom not believing in a God who judges. Listen to how um, Mirzlaw Wolf. he's a Croatian-American professor at Yale University, Listen to how he kind of describes his own journey wrestling with this as a guy who grew up in Croatia and then moved to America. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. He says, my last resistance to this idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. So that according to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shell day in, day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine a God not being angry. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath I came to think I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evils. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. In other words, what Wolf is saying is if we can just remove the cultural lens just for a second, how cruel would it be to have a God who doesn't get angry about something like the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania that looked the other way while its priest abused over a thousand innocent people. I mean, this is something that we don't, we can't just connect the dots on intellectually. No, this is something you need emotionally, because in this room right now, present there are countless stories of people who have been victims of some terrible things and what you need is a God who loves you enough to be mad about what happened to you what you need is a God who loves you enough to say no that was wrong to judge certain things and that's exactly what's happening right now in the church I mean put yourself in the story for a second the first century church this is it right here in the book of acts that we're looking at right now all right there's nothing else Imagine what this church would have looked like if Ananias and Sapphira and their hypocrisy could continue, if they became pillars, if they became leaders in the church. Imagine how many people would be damaged by their hypocrisy. Imagine how many people who sat under their hypocritical leadership that would be completely run over by it. And so Jesus purges them out of the church because he needs to, because he cares far too much. He loves Far too much his church to let this couple continue. All right, it's not easy to read, but Jesus needed to do it because he loves his church way too much to let anything get in the way of the welfare and the witness of it. Um, All right, so we've covered a couple heavy topics here. How's everybody feeling? Uh, Not really a softball passage, Um, but the good news, all right, is that Jesus, he's not done with his church here, all right? In fact, in this passage, I think lastly that we get to see a promise for you and me to give hope to anyone in here, to everyone in here who wrestles using the appearance of godliness for their own glory, so we've seen the threat to the church, the purge of the church. Last, I just want to finish by looking at the promise for the church. And the promise is that in the midst of this dark passage, Jesus isn't done with his church. In fact, I think we see that he's transforming it into something beautiful and anyone can get in on it. In verse 10, Luke writes, at that moment when Sapphira was convicted by Peter, it so says she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all those who heard about it. There's a lot of parallelism between Ananias' conversation with Peter and Sapphira's conversation with Peter. Anytime you see that kind of parallelism, one of the things you need to look for is what's different. And kind of just tucked into verse 11 there, Luke adds this subtle little note. Not just that everyone who's around there was filled with great fear, but the entire church was filled with fear. And I think in this last verse, we see this passage, in one sense, gives us this awful picture of the future judgment that will come, but in another sense, I think gives us a beautiful promise of the present fulfillment of God's promise that's happening right now in his church. So all throughout the Old Testament, like we looked at earlier, there was this promise for this restored people of God who he would use to bless the world through him. And in the context of these verses, in the passage just before that, and in this passage too, we are seeing the transformation of this restored people of God happen right before our eyes. In the book of Acts, Jesus is beginning this new age where he rules as the great promised Davidic king, sitting on God's throne in heaven, transforming his people, transforming you and me, freeing us from our sin that enslaves us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And how did this new age begin? By a death far more scandalous than the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus Christ, God himself, he went to a cross and he was purged from God's fellowship. And how could that be? I mean, he was completely innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. He, he, Jesus was, he was the complete opposite of a hypocrite. He, he lived a life of perfect godliness for the glory of his Father at all times. How is it that he got purged from God's fellowship? Well, I'll tell you how. Because in that moment... When God looked down on his son on the cross, he didn't see his perfect, sinless son anymore. Instead, he saw every sin that you and I ever have and ever will commit piled on top of his son's shoulders. And in that moment, he unleashed all of his divine judgment, poured it down onto his son, fully satisfying the judgment that my sins and your sins deserved in himself. We read this story and we think, man, the death of Ananias and Sapphira, that's crazy. There is a far more crazier death that this story is ultimately pointing to. The death of Jesus, who loves you so much with a beautiful, unconditional love that he went to the cross and he was purged from God's fellowship so that in him You never will be. And it's in this scandalous death of Jesus that the promised transformation of God's people is now made possible because it's in this death that you encounter a love so undeserved, so beautiful, so sweet, so tender, so overwhelming, that it makes you inside into an entirely new creation. It reorders all your desires and slowly transforms you more and more and more into the complete beautiful image of God that you were created to be. And one of the main ways that this transformation takes place is repentance. Like the prophet said would happen. Because it's in repentance that we come encounter with a love that is able to root out our most stubborn sins and capture us with this beautiful picture of Jesus. And you know what this repentance does? It enlivens witness. See, if hypocrisy kills witness, repentance, it breathes life into witness. Because a Christian who's constantly living this life of repentance is someone who has been humbled by their sin who's been captured by this beautiful picture of Jesus and who has now been set free by the grace of God to tell all the people around them, look, I I was a mess. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And yet Jesus came, and in his unconditional love, he saved me. And anyone can get in on this. So where do you need this transformation Where do you need a light to shine in the darkness? Where are you hiding? And you need to come into the love of Jesus. You see, the tough part about this passage, it's ultimately, it's not the death of Ananias and Sapphira. It's the fact that at some level, somewhere, we can all be a hypocrite. And yet, if you are there right now, Listen to these words from Thomas Watson and let them lead you to the person who has the power to transform that and so much more in your life. It says, if you mourn for your hypocrisy, yet find this sin so potent that you can't get mastery over it, go to Christ, beg him, that he would exercise his kingly office in your soul, that he would subdue your sin and put it under the yoke, beg of Christ to exercise his spiritual surgery upon you, desire him to lance out your heart and cut out the rotten flesh and that he would apply the medicine of his blood to heal you of your hypocrisy. Church, hypocrisy kills witness and yet Jesus has come. He was purged He was sent out for fellowship with God and in him we see the promise that enlivens our witness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the way that you speak and you act in it and the way you reveal your person to us. God, I confess there are so many times that I use the appearance of godliness for my own glory Holy Spirit, we pray now in this moment that you would convict us all, not just of our sin, but ultimately of the beauty of Jesus, of the promise that we have in him, that you are transforming your church into something beautiful and anyone can get on it because it's all built on your free grace. Amen.